Many years ago, a book and sort of a multiplication of the concept was going around called Search for Significance. You might have read it, done a study group with it, and it was a, a great concept, a great idea. It helped a lot of people, and I began using that simple little formula to share Christ with friends, and I would commonly take a napkin at lunch and draw a line on it and put security and significance and a line down the middle and ask the question, what gives you security? What makes you feel significant? And I would write down whatever that man usually would say. And I'd ask lots of questions, peppering him, what else, what else? And, and after four or five or six or ten things, I'd say, okay, what else? I'd draw a line. If you had all that, you'd be completely secure and completely significant. And they'd think for a minute and we'd write a few more words down. And after a few minutes, I would turn the napkin around and say, so you're telling me if you accomplish these things, get these things, have these tasks done, you will be a secure and significant individual. And it was always an epiphany. That's my, that's my life. That's what's going to make me secure. That's going to make me significant. And many times that was a very simple way to share Christ with someone saying, look, you can build all the security constructs you think you can have, what's going to make you feel important and significant contributing in the world, but those are all somewhat mercurial. And most of us who've lived past our 30s and 40s know that you get a lot of those things accomplished and you don't have the security or the significance you thought those were going to bring you. It begs a big question. What's going to give us meaning? What's going to give us purpose? American values and traditions are wonderful. I love them dearly. They're not biblical Christianity. There are many components of them that are, but it's not lock, stock, and barrel. If you do these things, you'll be a great Christian and a great American and have the flag out on holidays. How do we look at our lives carefully through the lens of Scripture, not the world, and ask to answer the question, am I significant in God's estimation? Is he using me in some way that I can look at life and say, I feel like I'm doing something for God. I have a sense this is what I was made to do. I have an understanding of my gifts, talents, strengths, abilities, whatever, that I'm doing this not just for myself to build these constructs of significance and security, but to be used. And I will argue until I die that until and unless we understand our lives are for a far greater purpose, not some new age purpose, but that we're serving a king, not ourselves. We will always end up with a frustrated list. It will never fulfill the way we would want it to fulfill. We will always be a little hollow at the end of that list. I want to know, am I useful to God? Does my life have meaning? It's this all it was about, working hard, providing for children, maybe providing for grandchildren, get them through college, get them set up, have a few grandchildren running around, and then die. Was that it? Not that that's not important and wonderful and great, but is that the line at the bottom? I'm now secure. I'm now significant because I fulfilled these goals. In Herman Melville's Moby Dick, how many of you had to read Moby Dick in high school or college? Quite a few of us. Um, if you've not, it's a great book. You should read it. It will astonish you, the layers of spiritual metaphor in the book. 
the priest a character Melville wrote is a guy named Father Maple. And he writes of the book of Jonah. Shipmates, this book containing four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of Scripture. What a pregnant lesson to us is the prophet. What a noble thing is the canticle, the song, the canticle in the belly of the fish. We feel the floods surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpie bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime and the sea are about us. But what is this lesson of the book of Jonah? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to us all, sinful men. And a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. You and I have control and freedom to do a lot in our lives. And are we doing it for God? Not in word and deed. You can become a pastor. I would discourage you from doing that. You can become a missionary, a ministry person. You do all kinds of things in life and have the appearance of serving God and yet still not be serving Him. And you can be a mom. You can be in a marketplace. You can be a dual-income family. You can be a mom with a full-time job, part-time job. You can be a single individual. And whatever career field, whatever your area is, can be as much, if not more, of a ministry than you perhaps see. It begins with the most basic of all concepts. Do we obey God? Wherever he has us. Obedience is a word that has fallen in great disfavor. We don't like to talk about it unless you're training dogs or children. Other than that, who are you to tell me what to do? But God takes very seriously that we obey him. And if we could reframe looking at obedience from not I have to or I should, but that I get to and there's benefit from, maybe it will change our perspective about how we choose to obey rather than choose to disobey. Obedience goes much further than we understand. First, it shows that we love God. If we love Him, we keep His commandments. If we love Him, we obey what He told us to do. A child obeys his father or mother, it delights the parent. And it often delights the child. And it takes a mature child and a mature parent to understand the relationship. I have your best in mind. If you obey me, I'm going to help you because I have your best in mind. Obeying God brings, I would argue, real fulfillment. And obeying God will give you a sense that he is using you in ways maybe that are not always perceptible. If you have your booklet open to the section in Jonah chapter 3, and to begin, I would like to suggest and argue that God wants to use you. He wants to use you to accomplish His will, not merely your and my plan, but His will in your life. Jonah 3 verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Casual and students of the Bible will quickly think of all sorts of stories. First Kings 13, where a disobedient prophet is mauled and killed by a lion. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who deceive the apostles and try to deceive God's people, are struck dead on the spot. But Abraham lies, Moses murders, David commits immorality and uses murder to cover up his immorality and in hubris numbers his people. And Peter denies the Lord and on the list could go. And all of those men are forgiven and reused in many ways. Some are taken off the scene, but many are used. 
In fact, few are taken off the scene in the record. They're all different, of course, but at the baseline, they all disobeyed God, and yet God used them. Jonah is given a second chance. You and I are here right now at this moment in time history, and it's evident we are the recipients of at least a second chance, if not a 257,000th second chance. We all are here and present because God has allowed us to be here for a time. And of course, we sin all the time. We sin all the day. We don't like to recognize it or think about it because we all want to be happy. Happiness is so important to us. But we are proud. We're arrogant. We lie. We deceive. We lust. We covet. We slander. We hurt people. We rage. We get angry. We flat out disobey certain things, whether it's parents or our job. I believe it was Alexander White, I should find the quote since I'm always saying, I believe it was Alexander White, who said, the closer you walk to Christ, the more of your sin you see. Makes sense. Because when I'm in the Word and I'm spending time with God's people and I'm convicted by God's Spirit, my sin is lit up. Like flaws in sheetrock, you don't see them in dim light, but you turn the light on and you see every flaw every poor area of paint, every nick, every little imperfection, but in the dim lighting, you don't see things. And when you're close to Christ, our sin, are, are they're loud, they're illuminated. We have a soft, quick conscience when we do something. We know it's wrong. And it's kind of two-edged. It's a good thing if we keep short account and confess and ask for help. If we, The corollary is scary if Alexander White is true. That if I'm not close to Christ, I don't see my sin, and I don't think I sin, and sin doesn't really bother me that much, I might be in pretty deep trouble. Well, Jonah's given a second chance, and the kind sovereign is going to use him for his purpose and his work. Would you read aloud with me verses 2 through 4 if you have your Jonah booklet? I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you have the booklet we gave you to take notes, that's great to read off that. Let's read this aloud together, verses 2 through 4. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You remember we began the study a few weeks back. I pointed out in chapter 1 the three primary verbs. We have the same verbs here, arise, go, cry out, in the numeric standard, arise, go, proclaim. I want you to get up, go and deliver a message that I'm going to give you. Nineveh is described three times in the book as a great city. From chapter 4, verse 10, we're told there are 120,000-some people in Nineveh. It would probably be three miles at its widest point and about eight miles in circumference, 1,850 acres, which is just shy of 1,400 football fields to give you a perspective of the size of land. 
Now, in that land area of 120,000 people, they're in a wall. And again, if you have the booklet, you can see that we have a little map there on that page to show you the idea. It's built up, of course. There's some relief in the land, elevation and so forth, but it's just houses and buildings packed on top of one another. It would not take Jonah three days to walk across the city. Uh, so the proclamation uh, is debated in what he's doing. Um, he probably could have spent a lot of time walking through the city, proclaiming it. Notice he says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. So we have progression. He's beginning to go, and he cried out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The began to, the verbal movement of the text is he's starting. Now, we're not told precisely as proclamation. We're only told, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I seriously doubt that's all that Jonah said for three days. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That wouldn't take very long. So we have to be careful, but most of the prophets, chapter 1, he's given an instruction. Here he's given an instruction. We're given a message. Isaiah delineates that. Jeremiah delineates that. Major prophets, lots of information. We're not told Jonah's message. But there's no reason to doubt he would not have interacted with people moving across a congested city, talking to people about Yahweh Elohim, the Hebrew God, and they would be asking questions about this Hebrew God and about him. And obviously God's Spirit is using uh, Jonah. We have no record of the kind of preacher he was or the eloquent speeches he gave from God's Word as a major prophet was given. That's at the point of the story. But it's a good conclusion that he was dialoguing. You might think of a street preacher moving through a city and talking and engaging people about Yahweh Elohim. They knew of the Jew. They knew of the Jews' God. The Assyrians did. As we began the study, tried to articulate that. So he's interacting with them for three days, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know how many times in my life people have asked me about numbers in the Bible. And uh, I, I remember reading books about numbers, not the ones on the popular shelf, but books called things like Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And there are people with mathematical brains that I don't have, nor covet, nor envy. Uh, but they love to study numbers in the Bible. And in, this, is my, this is my entire knowledge-based sermon on numbers in Scripture. God likes the number 3, 7, 70, 10, and 40. That's it. God likes certain numbers, and they illustrate perfection, they illustrate rhythms, and sometimes we look at these things real deeply great. Not my bailiwick, not my wheelhouse. God bless you if you like that. 40 days was a period for them to repent, a period of them for God's Spirit to work on those people using the message Jonah Proclaim. Verses 5 to 9, let's read Nineveh's response. Again, please read aloud with me. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands." 
Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. First of all, they believed God. They believed God. They believed in God. The text does not say they believed Jonah, but they believed in God. When you came to faith, if you have trusted Christ and Christ alone as your Savior, you put your faith in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. We trust Christ at His Word. We believe Him at His Scripture. You're holding a book, if you have a real Bible, not a fake electronic one. You're holding a Bible that is the very Word of God. It's not Moby Dick. It's not the Great Gatsby. It's not the shack. It's not whatever is popular today. It is the very Word of God. Yeah, it's a little complicated. Yes, it's a little thick. Yes, sometimes it's a little head-scratchy and confusing. But it is the very Word of God. And it's been given to us. They believed in the Word that Jonah spoke about the living God. And you and I have the privilege and luxury of holding that Word in our hands, and we're not believing in just a book. We're believing in the Word of God that He has spoken. And as my professor said, and he has not stuttered. He gave a clear revelation, and that revelation was responded to by the Assyrians, by the Ninevites. Faith is trusting in that. Now, remember years ago there was a, a kitschy bumper sticker, God said it, uh, I believe it, that settles it. Remember that? And I tried to uh, look for, you know, I don't know about you, but you're studying and reading, and you get on rabbit trails on the in Internet on the worldwide internet. And so I'm lost looking for a picture to show you that bumper sticker on like an old beat-up 70 car. Well, I never found it. Um, and even though it's kind of a cheeky, cheesy bumper sticker, it's true. God said it. I believe it. I hope you do. And that, in a sense, settles it. But I stumbled across a fascinating postmodern Christian spin on it that said, God said it. I interpreted it. That doesn't exactly settle it. And boy, does that illustrate American Christianity. God said it. I interpreted it, what it means to me, what I think it means, and it doesn't exactly settle it. And they went on to embellish it. I interpret it meaning as best I could in light of the filters imposed by my upbringing, culture, and how I try to control my life but never can do a perfect job. That doesn't exactly settle it was expanded, but it gives me enough of a platform to base my values and decisions on. That's reduction Christianity, and I dare say it's the plague of our country. Believing in God in the Assyrian culture and for the Ninevites, they responded. They did something. And what they did from the king and his nobles, he convinced his cabinet of this. We might say God convicted the king. He convinced his cabinet and the whole nation followed in this national mourning. Fasting in sackcloth and ashes is not a new thing. And we still do it in different forms today. But in antiquity, in the middle uh, ancient Near Eastern world, sackcloth and ashes was a mourning. It was, it was a 9-11. The flag comes down. The airports are shut down because of terror. Prayer went back into the public schools, even in Washington, D.C. on 9-11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and following. 
Because when something that bad happens, a nation mourns. Its imagery, we're as good as dead. It's ripped our hearts out what has happened. And so for the Persians, uh, they would cover their animals to hide themselves. Now, sackcloth is the idea of covering to hide, to debase oneself. The leader humbled himself. If you're in a community group, we have questions that we write that parallel the study on the weekends. And if you have an opportunity to, to look at those questions in your group, I take you through chapter 1 and chapter 3 to make comparisons and contrasts with the two. And the verbs are what I want you to see. Let me just show you a couple of them. You'll notice the king in particular, he humbles himself, but look what he does. He issues a proclamation, but he arose, laid down his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And it's a movement the reader and the hearer are supposed to see and feel. He got up, he took off his human sovereignty, he sat down in sackcloth and ashes. And you compare and contrast that with what Noah, do, what Jonah does when God calls him in chapter 1. He runs away, he goes down the job, but goes down into a ship, down into the belly of the ship, down into the belly of a sea monster, and is vomited up on dry land. Next chapter. So the sequences, are you're meant to feel them. Here we have the sovereign of the earthly sovereign king who humbles himself, and maybe God will relent. And so we're meant to see the juxtaposition of Jonah's reaction to God's word versus a pagan's reaction to God's word. And that's why grace can make us angry sometimes. Because we don't like to see evil people get off. We don't like you know, death row conversions. It's not fair. And theologically it causes us great angst. Well, Jonah has gone through the city yet 40 days, verse 3 will be overthrown. He's preaching the message. They're responding to the message from the king down to the animals. Now, when a national leader calls for this repentance, he says to cover the animals. It's a little bit of exotic color to the story, but the Persians would do this. They would cover their animals in a national mourning. Uh, but reasonably, we might say they feared the destruction not only of themselves, but their livestock. After all, these are the same Hebrews that rumors of Egypt have continued to go across the generations. These are the Hebrews that we've heard about what their God can do, even to his own people. So Jonah, no doubt, has proclaimed some of God's work to the Ninevites. Now, in Western society, we have vestiges of sackcloth and ashes. We don't call them that, but... If you've ever seen a police officer, an elected official funeral, a, a death, a murder of one of these that we esteem in our civil service, they uh, will often put them in a caisson, and they're pulled by horses that are uh, caparsoned is the word. They cover them with black, caparsoned, caparsoned. And so these black horses with the black capes on them pulling the caisson. If you remember Reagan's funeral when they flew him to D.C. and they pulled his body around the city with a caisson. And what are the, the motorcade is black because it's a sign of national mourning. And you even cover the animals in those dignitary funerals. And the images are still there. Verse 8, and let men call on God earnestly. What did the men on the sailors on the boat do? Call on your God, same word, earnestly. 
So we've got the pagans on the boat and the pagans in Nineveh calling on God earnestly and we have very little from our prophet, our foiled, flawed hero, Jonah. Verse 9, who knows? Maybe God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we may not perish. I believe they're converted at this point, just like the sailors on the boat. Uh, they worship God. They have called on their God. They've cried out to their gods. Nothing worked. They wake Jonah up. Jonah won't call on his God. They implore Jonah to do it. Uh, Jonah says, throw me overboard. They're not willing to have blood on his, their hands. In desperation, they finally pitch Jonah overboard only after praying. Paraphrase, don't hold this against us. And they're saved. And they no longer call on their gods, but they worship Yahweh Elohim. Same thing happens here. From the king down, they worship Yahweh Elohim. They're converted. Now, their faith is accompanied by a change, an outward change. Unfortunately, 37 years later, the Assyrians will destroy Israel. And 100 years later, Nahum writes his prophetic book when God instructs him to, and Nahum tells the story of Nineveh's destruction. So even though many of these people came, we would say, came to Christ in our vernacular, Within a hundred years, it's all gone and forgotten, and today, of course, it is a ruin. God's response, verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity, same word found in, verse, in chapter 1, which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So how does God relent? How does God repent? How does God change his mind? People worry about this a lot. Remember in college, big arguing sessions to late night. God can't repent. Well, when Moses is about, when God's going to destroy the Israelites for their stubborn, stiff-necked disobedience, Moses intercedes and the king's English said, God repented. God changed his mind. So careful Bible students and cynics go, see, God's capricious. He does what he wants. He changes his mind. He's a puppet in reverse. We, we can make God do things. First of all, understand the concept of repentance simply means to turn both in Old Testament and New Testament. The words mean to turn. Hebrew shuv means to turn. Turn directions. In the New Testament, repent means to change your mind, to turn. This is sin. I know it's sin. I shouldn't do that. I, it's not just a matter of obeying. I need to turn, disobeying, turn away from it and do something else to help me not sin. With Christ's help, Christ's Spirit helping me, I, I, otherwise I'll just keep doing the same thing. Repenting is to turn. Now, God does not change his character. His holiness and justice and mercy and sovereignty are unchangeable. But he relents in the sense that had they not repented, he would have destroyed them. And the same remains true today. For people who do not repent, they face a Christless eternity in a place called hell. We will live forever in one of two locations. We are made in the image of God. We are His image bearers, each one of us. We are designed for eternity. We will be resurrected with a new body that will live forever, everyone. The question is location and relationship. Where and with whom? And those who are in Christ are secure in Christ, and we have been bought and paid for as we commemorate it. The kind sovereign doesn't change his mind whimsically or capriciously, but Scripture uses human language to say God didn't bring the calamity because he saw they repented, which is a great reminder we need to share Christ with people as case-hardened and as difficult as they may be. 
chances are you were like me, very case-hardened and cynical before you came to Christ, before I came to Christ, or maybe just real religious but with no relationship. Salvation is always and only by grace. Grace is not earned. Grace is often defined as undeserved favor. And I like to amend that a bit. Grace is undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Because not one of us is without sin. We all deserve wrath. And God in grace offers us freedom from sin, forgiveness, a relationship with Him, redemption. He dies in our place on our behalf instead of us. What do we do? We believe. We trust in Him to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And in that sense, God relents and that we are no longer destined to hell. We have now been plucked like a brand and we are set in relationship with Christ. God can and does bring judgment later on Nineveh. 37 years and counting. Jacques Ellul writes, in reality, God's repenting in the face of man's repentance is Jesus Christ. In reality, God's repenting in the face of man's repentance is is Jesus Christ. I've scratched my head on that all week long. In reality, God's repenting in the face of man's repentance is Jesus Christ. He puts Christ in our place instead of us on our behalf. That's how God repents. He changes his mind. He makes a way. He doesn't, uh, I think I'm going to change, I don't like plan A. There's always, as Lloyd always says, there's no plan B. From eternity past, it's how he orchestrated it. Our finite minds can't comprehend it. Elul tried to get close. I'll give him a 9 out of 10. Didn't quite get there. A couple of lessons. Number one, we're living in a day where people are hungering for the Word, and we must be careful what we teach. We must be careful what we teach. For you who teach students or children, or maybe at FSM, or you're in precept or BSF, or you have a Bible study, community group leader, um, you are holding the very Word of God in front of people. I find it interesting, we might spend more time working on an email than preparing for a lesson we're going to lead or facilitate or teach. If you've not visited a lot of churches, maybe fellowship in your home for a while, that's great and good fine. I cannot tell you how many people will tell Lloyd, Bill, or me, ongoing, we come to fellowship because it's the first church we found that teaches the Word. And not to be proud or arrogant about it, that's not the motive for even sharing the story. It's just, it's tragic how many churches we passed, especially here, coming to church today. Now, of course, I had to come here. You didn't. But we passed a whole lot of churches we could have gone to. And when I hear someone who's lived here many years, as I talked to a woman a few years ago, been in Brentwood most of her life, and she said, I've been to a certain church most of my life. She goes, I started coming to fellowship. I was drawn there, and you guys teach the Bible. I've never heard anybody teach the Bible. The land is parched. We're not great. We're not superstars. We're not anything special. We're just Bill Lloyd and I trying to teach the Scripture and trying to prod you to study it on your own because that's where the real learning begins. Maybe here is the little starting and initiation, 
but you've got to do the work on your own to be a student. I will plead and beg with you as long as I have the privilege of standing in front of a group of people, study the scripture for yourself. Every morning, every evening, whatever time works for you, just a little time. Maybe you're not a morning person. Do it in the evening. Maybe you are a morning person. Get up 20 minutes earlier, half hour earlier. If you can't do it for 20, start at 10 minutes. Work your way up. Make it a goal that by a certain time in your life, you're spending an hour a day in the Word, not because you have to or should or some security significant issue, but to spend the time with God and His Word. He's revealed Himself to us. He's given us His Word. And we live in a life of frustration and confusion, oftentimes because we don't know the mind of God. And if I know the mind of God, obedience isn't really that hard. Oh, sure, I'm selfish, and I like to sin just like a few of you do. But if I love God, and I am a little better resisting the temptation and a little more ready to obey Him by the power of His Spirit and saturation of His Word, over time, it starts to lessen its grip on us. And the beauty of obedience is it often ends in unexpected blessing. Prof often told us the word must minister to you before it can minister through you. Or you say another way, you cannot teach what you do not know. If you don't know him, next time you're in a community group and someone says, what does this passage mean to you? Interrupt the conversation. Say, excuse me. Let's don't talk about what it means to you. Let's ask, what does it mean? Let's study what the Word says before we go to what does it mean to us. Or we're back to the t-shirt and the bumper sticker. You will never waste time in the Word. Secondly, obedience often ends in blessing. Again, a word we don't use much, we don't think about obeying, it's old school, it sounds like parenting or old King's English, but obedience often ends in blessing. Obeying what we know goes farther than we think. There's an imperceptible influence to doing the right thing in the right way by the right spirit than we understand. When we parent our children and doing our best to teach and train them, we're trying to impose on them life skills, manners. You know, is it... Some of you still have young children at home. I remember the battles, close your mouth while you eat your food. We fought that battle for all of our younger children. Why? Because we don't want them to look like horses when they go somewhere else, right? When they go to someone else's house, when they're on a date, close your mouth when you're chewing your food. For good. Brush your teeth a couple, three times a day. What child likes to brush his or her teeth? They all hate it. You spend $200 on a fancy toothbrush, they still won't do it. We're just mean people. Torture you. Brush your teeth. We hate you. Go brush your teeth. Want them to have good dental hygiene and not have gingivitis like the commercial makes us all afraid of. And floss. Goodness, that must be like superheroes if you floss. And we're teaching them basic skills for their good. God gives us his word. And he's our parent. And if we love him, we want to obey him. Because he knows better. And he knows that when we're 16, we're going to, have, we're going to want to have a pretty white smile. He knows that 
it's good to have manners and say yes ma'am and thank you and no sir and yes sir and excuse me and please when they're out in public and when they raise their own children trying to enforce those same manners on them. It's good. Don't like it when we're young perhaps. Is it a far stretch to say that if I obey God will use me? We're obviously here because we've been given more than one second chance. God obviously has something in store for you and me. And I think he wants to use you. What I don't know is if you believe that. You're in a place, you're in a position in life, you're in a company, you have a job, mom, neighborhood, sphere, single parent, wherever you are in life, you have a sphere of influence that you uniquely can impact. And as you follow Christ at His Word, you don't even, you can't even begin to know what imperceptible influence you will have on people just by following what Christ wants you to do. Loving others, being kind, being faithful, being true to your Word, putting others more important than yourself once in a while. All the things that we know we're to be about. It's not a to-do list. It's not legalism. It's not meant to make us feel guilty. The Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. I have enough guilt in my life. I have a strict conscience, so my psychologist friend told me a decade ago, Michael, you have a strict conscience. What's wrong with that? He said, well, if at 2 o'clock in the morning and you came to a stoplight, no one, a stop sign, no one was around anywhere, far, you'd come to a complete stop. I said, yes, you're supposed to. He said, see, you have a strict conscience. I said, what's wrong with that? He goes, well, it's just a strict conscience. I go, why am I paying this money? <laughs> strict conscience. I run it, he said. Well, I said. That's wrong. See, strict conscience. I don't need a guilty conscience. I need help. I don't need somebody reminding me how bad I am. I do a good job of that. Holy Spirit indwells you in me to conform us to the image of Christ. He's better than a guilty conscience. He loves us. He loves you. And if Christianity is not just all about me, then what's the next chapter? The next chapter is how are you being used where you are in your sphere of influence to help other people? For them to know Christ, to grow in their faith, to be mature, to mature, to grow in maturity. I don't, I've never done this before. I probably won't do it again. Someone who follows me on Facebook and I, him, I, I have a love-hate with Facebook more hate than love, but on the homepage, this person had a pretty questionable post, and I've been guilty of a lot of questionable posts, but this one was pretty lurid, and I decided to call him out. I've never done this before, and I went, didn't do it publicly, went in a message and said, you know, my brother, my friend, do whatever you want, but that's not becoming of a guy who calls himself a believer, and I sat on it a long time before I clicked send and about 24 hours later, and I never do messaging on Facebook. I hate Facebook. I, don't, I hate messaging even more than that. But I saw it pop up, and I go, oh, no, what's that person going to say to me? And I opened it up, and he said, thanks. I needed to be called out. I pulled it down. Now, I'm not saying get on Facebook and play police. I'm not saying that. I'm saying is you have imperceptible influence you're not using. If it's imperceptible, how do we use it? That's the point. 
if you and I are living faithfully, admitting our faults and flaws and struggles, and we're co-laborers with those who are in the same ditch, you know, we're better than this because we're following Christ, not because we're better than people, because we represent a king. You and I ought to live a little more becoming than the rest of the pack. And I need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. So do you. I brag about our elders all the time. And I get to do that because I'm still and always will be the new kid here at Fellowship. But I will tell you, I've never seen men that are sensitive to God's Word and God's Spirit in my entire life. I've had great elders and great teams before, and we're all sinners. But I will tell you, their hearts are soft for you, soft for the Word. They want to grow. They want to be good and godly men. And they want you to be good and godly men and women. And you know what? We don't know how to do it. Because there's almost 5,000 of you. So we trust God's Word and God's Spirit and God's people. And sometimes it comes back to simply, are you obeying what you know you're to be about? I don't do premarriage counseling anymore. Good reasons for that. You wouldn't want me to be your premarriage counselor. Trust me. And um, we have better people that do that, and they do a far more extensive job than I can. And um, But I do a few weddings, and fewer of those. Um, but um, I just got tired of it. I got tired of these young couples coming in, engaged and in love, and sitting in one chair. <laughs> and they're in love with love, and God called them together, and they're perfect mate, match and perfect mates, and they're going to get married and have the most perfect family in the whole universe, and they're, and they're living together. So we, okay, for, number one, I need you to do something if we're going to do this. I need you guys to separate. Move home with mom, with dad, get an apartment, live in a friend's basement for a while until you're married. What? Pushback, anger, resistance. I said, okay, let me ask you a couple questions. You want the sweating in the church. Why? We want God to bless it. Good thing. Why do you want God to bless it? Well, we want to have a good marriage. Why? Well, it's important. Why? And they don't have any answer for these questions. I just, that's why you don't want me, pre-marriage counseling. And I just keep pummeling them. Why? And I go, you're telling me you think it's important to get married by a church, by a pastor, by a preacher, by a minister, a reverend of some kind with a robe on maybe even. And that's important to you, but you're going to live in sin according to the same guy that's saying you want to get married in that church. Right. You see, the world says this is fine. Everybody says this is fine. It's not fine. We could illustrate it a hundred ways. Obedience is important. It's not meant to be a burden. And I promise you, that couple living together, getting married, is going to have worse problems than the ones who aren't. I can guarantee it. I've seen it long enough. Any counselor in this room would agree with me. I don't understand all I know. But I know as we obey Christ at His Word, it puts us in a posture for blessing. He might bless us for no good reason, and I'm thankful just like you are when that happens. But when you're faithful and you're obeying God, it puts you in a posture for Him to use you and to bless you. And here's the greatest part of it. Over time, you will see a joy that is more important than the security and significant construct. You'll begin to see a joy in how God 
will use you. How you'll have freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, few regrets, and you work through the ones you have. And you understand what forgiveness really means. And you start to see others through kinder eyes. And you start to see yourself as an emissary, not just a self-absorbing Christian all about me, but a person that's here for others. I believe he wants to use you. I hope you do too. Father, thank you for your word and for your people. Thank you for the privilege of opening your very word in front of your people. And may we all submit, align ourselves, not just to rules and regulations, but to a heart after you, to love you and want to run to obey. We ask in Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.